Galatians 1, verse 11, to Galatians 2, verse 14. This is what Holy Scripture says. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, Taking Titus along with me, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slept and despised our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. 
But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of the Lord. This morning, by a simple fill-in-the-blank exercise, so I hope you have your thinking caps on, we all know how this works. I guess if you don't, I'll explain it. I'm going to start a sentence, and then you have to fill in the blank, okay? Now, don't do this out loud, but just in your head. Okay, let's have some practice rounds here, nice and simple. My favorite color is... Okay, not out loud, not out loud, but thank you, Jair. (laughs) Okay, that's why we practice. (laughs) My best friend is, (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm still laughing. I am most scared of, okay, here's one more, and I really want you to think about this one. I am most protective of blank. Okay. You have something in your head? Hold on to that. I think there's probably a list of things, a few things that some of us could have filled in this blank with. Uh, I thought of a few. Uh, You probably could have responded and said something like your children or your family, your health, your name your reputation, your retirement, maybe your time. But no matter what you filled in that blank with, I can guarantee you that it's something that you care deeply about because you protect what you value. Now, don't raise your hand, don't say this out loud, but did any of you fill in the blank with the gospel? I think that if the Apostle Paul was here today, he would have. Because what we see in Galatians 2 is that the Apostle Paul was willing to do whatever it takes to protect the true gospel. Paul wanted to safeguard the gospel because he cared deeply about the gospel. And he cared deeply about the gospel because he knew that this was the only message that brought freedom and redemption to humanity. As the narrative continues in Galatians 2 here, Paul shows us that doing whatever it takes to protect the true gospel involves two elements. Here are the elements. This is what it involves to protect the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, being diligent to protect the, co- the content of the gospel. Being diligent to protect the content of the gospel and being deliberate to live consistent with the gospel. So we're going to look at 
both elements, but let's look at the first one. Be diligent to protect the content of the gospel and how you can protect the content of the gospel by being diligent. You confront false gospels. So let me rephrase that. To be diligent to protect the content of the gospel, it first involves confronting false, go- false gospels. Look at uh, Galatians 2, verses 1 through 5. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spout our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So after 14 years of preaching in Syria and Cilicia, Paul eventually goes up to Jerusalem, and he goes up to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles there, and he says he goes up because of a revelation. Now, if you're a close reader, this is the second revelation that happens in the first two books, first two chapters of Galatians. The first revelation took place in Galatians 1.12, and that was God revealing the gospel to Paul at his conversion. But now the revelation in Galatians 2.1 that he's talking about, this is different. This is, he says, it's 14 years later. This is new information that's being revealed to Paul. And this revelation from heaven prompts God, or from, from heaven, from God, prompts Paul to go to Jerusalem to protect the gospel. So Paul responds. He goes to Jerusalem. He goes up with Barnabas, and he takes up Titus with him. So Barnabas is here. Barnabas uh, was a close companion to Paul. He's a personal encouragement to Paul in his ministry. He helped Paul plant the churches in Galatia. But Titus is here because Titus is a prime example of a born-again Gentile Christian. That's what Paul tells us in verse 3 of our passage. He tells us that Titus was Greek. So here is Titus. Here is a man who was living proof that the right of circumcision, Old Testament law, that the right of circumcision was not needed for salvation. Paul says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. So Paul has a private meeting here with the Jerusalem apostles. That's Peter, James, and John. He refers to them as those who seemed influential, meaning they appeared to be the leaders of the church by the world's standards. These were the important guys. And he goes up and he set before them his gospel. The word set here in the original means to lay something before someone for consideration. So Paul lays his gospel before them to consider, to think about. And we can assume that this is the actual content of his gospel. This is the content of his message, the very gospel that God had given him, the gospel that had saved him, and the gospel that he's been preaching for the last 14 years, which is the very gospel that saved Titus. And Paul says, he goes up, he sets this gospel before them, the one that he had been preaching to the Gentiles, and he says he does this 
in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. What's he saying there? Well, you can read that and think, okay, is Paul now all of a sudden doubting his message and his calling? But that would actually run contrary to his entire argument through Galatians 1 and 2. I think what he's doing is he's actually considering the practical implications of the outcome of this private meeting. While his gospel is true, and he doesn't need any validation from any of the other apostles, he doesn't need a validation from anyone else other than God, that's his whole point in chapter 1, he knows that if the Jerusalem apostles disagree with him, it would be disastrous for the mission. You can't have two different groups of apostles running in two different directions with two different gospels. That would be like needing to to, to plow a field with, with ox, with oxen, but instead of actually yoking them together, you just tie them to the plow and let them run in any direction that they want. That's not going to work. They're going to go in different directions. But that's actually not what happens here. Paul shares the gospel with them, the very one that he's been preaching, and then he shows them Titus, a test case, if you will. Here's a prime example, again, of a, a born-again believing uh, Gentile. And so Peter, James, and John, they hear the content of Paul's gospel, his message, and they affirm it. And then one step further, they look at Titus and they don't force him to be circumcised because they recognize, based upon Paul's gospel, that this man has put his faith and trust in Jesus, which is sufficient for salvation. But there were some in that meeting who did want to force Titus to be circumcised, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. So as we read this, we finally come face to face with the same kind of false teachers that are leading the Galatians astray, and Paul calls them false brothers. And they somehow, in this private meeting, they sneak their way into this private meeting between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles. And it's funny, I think, Paul really piles on the words here to show their malicious intent. He says they snuck in, they slipped in, and they stealthily spied out Paul's message. They're like evil undercover agents. Or maybe if you're like a, you like old cartoons, Paul present, presents them like that, that sneaky uh, thief in cartoons, the guy who wears the striped shirt, white and black, with that bandit mask on. That's kind of how he presents, presents these guys. He, this is how Paul wants the Galatians to see these false teachers. They're sneaky. They're crafty. And you'll notice that Paul then uses two contrasting categories to point out the difference between his real message and their false message, freedom and slavery. Again, verse 4, and implies that they were insisting that Titus be circumcised to be truly saved. And by trusting adherence to the Mosaic law for salvation, Paul says that leads to bondage and slavery and death. Why? Because no one could keep God's law perfectly. And so Paul and all those who trusted the true gospel 
had real freedom, but the false brothers who trusted that false gospel of works had nothing but slavery. Let me ask you, do you primarily think of your standing before God as what you must do as opposed to what has been done for you? Because that's what the Judaizers were doing. That's what they were thinking. And I wonder if, if many of us here today might fall into that trap from time to time. You might believe the gospel, receive it as good news. You believe and love when God's word is preached. But maybe, just maybe, you still have this tendency, this thought in the back of your mind to want to add things into the gospel for yourself and for others. Again, the gospel focuses on what Jesus has, do, has done for you, but the false gospel and all other false religions focus on what you must do. And Paul says here, he reminds us here, if, if we get these things flipped around, if we get these things twisted, we're still enslaved. On the other side of enslavement, though, is freedom in Jesus Christ. Paul says, if you caught it, that the false brothers are spying out the freedom that he has in Christ Jesus. That little phrase, in Christ, is one of Paul's favorite phrases. To be in Christ means that you have trusted Christ and his work for your salvation, which means that your sins are forgiven, your debt is paid, and your soul is eternally secure, which means that when you are in Christ, truly in Christ, you don't need anything else. That's the message of the gospel, is that the Lord Jesus Christ came to die for sinners and was raised and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And by turning from your sins and by turning to Jesus and believing in him and trusting his work, you can have freedom from sin and death. This is the message of the gospel, that Christ's work is sufficient for our salvation. I'm reminded of what Paul says in, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul knows this. This has been revealed to him from God, and that's why he goes toe-to-toe with these false teachers. The freedom of the gospel was at stake. Everything that comes with being in Christ was at stake. And so what does Paul do? He acts. He acts decisively and definitively, and he confronts a false gospel. He says in verse 5, To them, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. To yield means to give way or to give into or to surrender. We uh, often here at Grace Fellowship Church, we sing the song, Yield not to temptation, which is a song about Christians not giving in to sin. We don't want to yield to sin. We don't want to give in to it. And Paul doesn't give in to his opponents here. He doesn't yield to their arguments. He doesn't yield to their false gospel, even for a moment. He stands his ground, and he confronts false teachers head on. Loved ones, if you're going to work diligently to protect the content of the gospel... One of the first places you can start 
is by confronting false gospels that come out of this pulpit. Paul says that you are the pillar and buttress of truth. So it's your job as members of Grace Fellowship Church to protect the content of the gospel by making sure that any man who steps into this pulpit is preaching the true biblical faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We can also confront false gospels when we hear false gospels in one another's lives, when we see it, when we hear it, in our homes, with our families, with other members, with our roommates. We ought to love the true gospel enough. We ought to love one another enough to speak up when we hear family members or church members maybe saying or believing a distorted gospel. Whether that's a faith plus works kind of false gospel, the prosperity gospel, the poverty gospel, or maybe even a political gospel. One that says Christians are only Christians if you pursue the right political policies. I believe, brother, sister, like Paul, that we ought to be willing to do whatever it takes to sniff out anything that distorts the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because by confronting false gospels, you actually preserve the real gospel for others. That's what Paul did. When he confronted a false gospel, he preserved the true gospel for you. That 2,000 years later, you had the true gospel to hold on to, the true gospel to believe and to trust. And again, I think that if we want to protect the true message of Jesus here in Rexdale in Toronto for generations to come, then you and I have to be willing to confront false gospels when we see them. That protects the true gospel. Now, not only do you protect the true gospel by confronting false gospels, but you also protect the true gospel by affirming the real gospel when you actually see it and hear it. Let's look at verses 6 to 10. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, sorry, uncircumcised and circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. While Paul recognizes the influence and the respect of the Jerusalem apostles, he's actually not concerned about their credentials. He says God shows no partiality, meaning God doesn't care about human credentials, nor should I, nor should you. But he's got to handle this argument delicately. On the one hand, again, his gospel stands totally independent of the Jerusalem apostles, since it came from God. But on the other hand, their affirmation of his gospel would have major positive ripple effects throughout the region. 
the true gospel would clearly stand in opposition against the false gospel for everyone to see. So again, Paul places his gospel before them, verse 3. And here in verse 6, he tells us that the Jerusalem apostles added nothing to his gospel. To add something to a gospel, to add something to Paul's gospel would be a form of correction. But because Paul's preaching grace alone and Christ alone through faith alone, they add nothing to his content of the gospel. They affirm it. And by affirming it, they declare it to be true. They also recognize that they were entrusted with the same kind of ministry. Paul was entrusted with the gospel in the same way that Peter was entrusted with the gospel. To entrust something to someone is to assign a responsibility to them. Elders here are assigned the responsibility of pastoring Grace Fellowship Church. They have been entrusted with the care of her members. Well, Paul, along with the other apostles, they were responsible for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. That was their assignment. They also recognized that God was the one, the same one who worked through both of their ministries in a similar way. Verse 8, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. The only difference between their ministries was that God called them to do two different groups of people. God called Paul to the Gentiles. God called Peter, James, and John to take the gospel to the Jews. And so after all of this, after they recognize all of these things, what happens? Verses 9 and 10. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So as a recap, they affirm Paul his message, and everything that he's preaching. They affirm his gospel. And they also affirm that God is working through the gospel in Paul's life in the same way that God has worked through the gospel in their lives. It's completely changed these men. And then they extend to Paul the right hand of fellowship, which means they affirm the man and his message. And by affirming Paul's gospel, they declare his message to be truly from God. That's what it means to affirm something. It's a declaration of fact and truth. We can all affirm that the sky is blue, maybe when there's not wildfires in Ottawa, but normally the sky is blue. Offering the right hand of fellowship then is a picture of agreement and affirmation. We still do this today. We shake hands with one another. We offer a promise. We shake hands when we offer a promise. We shake hands to seal a deal, to communicate trust and love, or we shake hands to enter into a partnership. So this still, this still happens. And so they do that with Paul, except there's a division of labor and one stipulation. Paul, you take the Gentiles, we'll take the Jewish people, and Paul, remember the poor, which Paul was very eager to do. Psalm 133.1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. These brothers were dwelling in unity. They were unified. Because affirming the true gospel protects the true gospel. Because when we affirm something, we declare it to be true. And brothers and sisters, that's actually what, that's what we do in membership. 
which makes joining Grace Fellowship Church as a member a great way to protect the gospel. And our process, if you're not familiar, when someone comes into membership, we ask for their testimony. And in someone's testimony, we see two things. We see their understanding of the gospel, and we see then how this gospel has changed their lives. And then when we put it before the membership, we vote on whether or not we can bind this person to us in membership. And if that vote is positive, we affirm a person's gospel profession, which means we affirm or we declare their right understanding of the gospel. We can then extend to them the right hand of fellowship where we partner together to help one another walk faithfully to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in church membership at GFC, we're declaring to the world that here are 200 real Christians because we can affirm that they are trusting and believing the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're a member here, if you're a member at Grace Fellowship Church and you care about protecting the gospel, be at the members' meetings because that's where we can actually affirm the real gospel when we hear it and when we see it And when we do that, we can extend to others the right hand of fellowship. So be diligent to protect the content of the gospel by confronting false gospels and by affirming the real gospel when you actually see it and hear it. But doing whatever it takes to protect the real gospel also requires you to be deliberate to live consistent with the gospel. Be deliberate, deliberate to live consistent with the gospel. How do we live consistent with the gospel? We fear God and not man. We fear God and not man. Verses 11 to 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So there's a change in scenery here. We move from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now we're not told when or why, but Peter and Paul are back here together and something significant happens. Paul confronts Peter because Peter and company acted hypocritically. That word, hypocritically, there in the original, it carries a connotation of pretending. It can actually communicate the work of actors. So Paul opposed Peter to his face because Peter stood condemned. Paul actively resists Peter. So the question here is, why was Peter uh, acting hypocritically and what did he do to warrant such a strong rebuke from Paul? Well, Peter's actions were inconsistent with the gospel. His conduct didn't match his profession. He said one thing, but did another. Why? 
because Peter feared man. Verse 12 again. For before certain men came from James, he, that, that is Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So apparently, Peter had made it a bit of a habit, a habit to eat with Gentile Christians. That verb there, he was eating, in verse 12, it communicates a, an ongoing, repeated action. But even further, if you caught it, in verse 14, Paul tells us that Peter was straight up living like a Gentile. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So what was happening in Antioch is that Peter was rightfully settling into a newfound freedom that he had in Christ that did away, from, that did away with purity laws and rituals. And everything was fine until some men came and joined for dinner. So what do we know about these guys who came from Jerusalem? Well, we know a few things here. We know they came from James uh, which means that we can assume that they all came from Jerusalem. And we'll see here that these men were Jewish. They belonged to the circumcision party. But when these men came, the text says that Peter drew himself back. He separated himself. He removed himself from eating from the Gentiles. So Peter's habits changed when different people were in the room. Why? Again, because he feared the circumcision party. Paul's theology didn't change. We know he still, uh, Peter's theology didn't change, excuse me. We know he held tight to the gospel. But because he feared man, he reverted back to Old Testament purity law by separating himself from the Gentiles. And by implication, he was teaching. His actions in this moment were telling the Gentiles that you had to live like a Jew to become part of the people of God. In this moment, Peter was actually doing the exact same thing that the false brothers were doing back in Jerusalem. He was forcing Gentiles to live like Jews. And we see the fallout here. Peter's sin leads to a whole slew of people falling away from the gospel even Barnabas was led astray. Paul says that in this moment of hypocrisy, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So Paul has to respond, and he does. He opposes him, and he rebukes him, all because Peter and company feared man. They feared man's opinion and fell away from the truth. The Bible has a lot to say about fearing the Lord and fearing man. The wise King Solomon says the fear of man lays a snare. So allowing man's opinion to hinder you from speaking truth or doing what is right or allowing man's opinion to control you and not the Lord, the wise king says that that is a trap. On the other side of things, though, the wise king decrees this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And the psalmist asserts, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And the prophet declares, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, to fear the Lord is to have a a reverential respect and awe of God, but it's also to tremble before him. Because the one who fears the Lord is the one who rightly recognizes that the Lord is the supreme sovereign king of the universe. The one who gives and takes away. The one who creates and the one who sustains. The one who redeems and the one who preserves. The one who gave us his son and gave us his word. And because he is the sovereign king, he calls us to obey him. So the question is, do you fear the Lord or do you fear man? Do you tremble at his word or not? Are we as Christians at Grace Fellowship Church, going to work hard at living consistently with the gospel or not? In the workplace, on the campus, in the grocery store, at the kitchen table, in our homes, will you choose to protect the gospel by fearing God? Or will you allow the opinion of man to cause you to desert the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, fear the Lord, and with his gracious help, be diligent to keep your conduct in step with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you live consistently with the gospel, you demonstrate that it's true, that it's beautiful. You protect what you value. Now, there's a lot of really good things that God has given us in this earth to value. But are you willing to do whatever it takes to protect the best thing, the true gospel? It's your job as the pillars and buttress of truth to protect it. Our families are at stake. Our neighborhood is at stake. And our world is at stake. Because the gospel is the sole message that brings freedom and redemption to humanity. I pray and I'm going to be praying that God will continue to give us strength to do so. Would you pray with me?